Now seeking the Lord's help, let's open our Bibles once again this evening to the Psalter, to the book of Psalms, and tonight to number 128, Psalm 128. You may recall that last week we were in Psalm 126, and as we come tonight to Psalm 128, you may be wondering what happened to Psalm 128. Seven, And the answer is that I have not forgotten Psalm 127, nor are we skipping it altogether, but actually that we already soaked it up some years ago uh, when we were looking at various psalms early on in my time here. And so as I attempt to preach one sermon apiece from each of the 150 psalms, my strategy is to press on with the psalms we haven't covered And for the ones that we have, like Psalm 127, I'll simply allow our earlier looks at them to stand. And there are actually going to be a handful of psalms like that that we will bypass in the weeks ahead, 127, 130, 131, 136, 139, and 141. So uh, you may read those on your own, but we're going to bypass them, not because we're ignoring them, but because we've already gleaned in those fields in times gone by. And so tonight... We come to Psalm 128, which is, again, as the psalms in this section are, it is a song of ascents, and it reads as follows. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So, Lord, we do pray as we were singing in the words of Daniel Iverson, Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on us. Be our teacher once again tonight from this psalm that we may hope in you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of you are aware that there is in certain quasi Christian circles a great deal of talk about the blessed life or your best life, or how God wants your basket always to be full and your life to be prosperous and healthy, as defined by American standards, of course, and how he wants you to have all of these things, as our friend in Houston has put it, now. And most of us, I hope, also realize that much of that religion is false, because it takes passages out of context and fails to take into account the entirety of what the Bible has to say about blessing and suffering and the Christian's ultimate hope, which is not in this world. And really, so much of that health and wealth doctrine just appeals to the flesh, doesn't it? It makes the Bible appear as though it's all about me, which is why it's popular, of course. And so we rightly abominate that kind of teaching, and we recoil when we come across it on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is aptly named in an ironic sort of way. I thought about it today because they do promote the Trinity of health, wealth, and prosperity. 
And we understand that that is so wrong. And yet with all of that said, we can't avoid the fact that there are passages in the Bible, like the one that is open before us this evening, which do teach that God's desire for his people is prosperity. That's what this psalm teaches, isn't it? For the man who fears the Lord, there is, in Psalm 128, a promise of blessing. Blessing in his work, verse 2. Blessing in his family, verse 3. And then there is a prayer of blessing in verses 5 and 6 concerning the prosperity of Jerusalem and also concerning long life and future descendants in verse 6. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And we can't just sweep all that blessing under the rug because we don't want to go the way of the prosperity teachers, can we? And so we have to take Psalm 128 with all that it says about blessing seriously and hopefully receive it joyfully. But as we begin to take this psalm seriously, we do have to notice a stark difference between the prosperity teaching of this psalm and the prosperity teaching that is current and popular in modern America. Namely, that while the hucksters and the shysters on TBN so often teach that you can have your basket filled simply by what they call faith, yet Psalm 128 says that the way to blessing is fear. Did you notice that? In verses 1 and 4, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, verse 1. And then in verse 4, Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now that's not often the message of the modern prosperity teachers, is it? They emphasize that if you just believe God, then you can have whatever job you want, whatever finances you think you need, whatever success you crave, by simply having enough faith, and perhaps demonstrating that faith by sending them a little check in the mail too. But of course... Though that is wrong, we mustn't turn around and discount the role of faith in the reception of God's promises. The Bible itself makes a big deal of the necessity that we trust God for his blessings, right? But this psalm reminds us that trusting God is not only believing that he will bless you, but that trusting God is also believing that it's your responsibility to bless him to fear him, to honor him, to reverence him, and thus, as verse 1 puts it, to walk in his ways. That's how the psalmist summarizes what it looks like to fear the Lord in verse 1. The man who fears the Lord is the same man in verse 1 who walks in his ways. And note that it is that man, not just the man who thinks he believes God for a blessing, but the man who actually fears God. It is that man who will receive the blessings of this Psalm. Indeed, I think we have to say that many of the extreme name it and claim it folks, by very dint of their theology, exclude themselves from the promises and prayers of this psalm because their notion of a God who will do whatever we conjure in our imaginations that he must do, that notion of God is often the very opposite of godly fear. That God is like a genie in a bottle. But the God of the Bible is the God who is in the heavens, Psalm 115, and who does whatever he pleases. And so we must beware of imbibing that view of God ourselves, of thinking that what he asks of us is simply that we believe him for a new living room suit or a better car or a more prosperous job or what have you. God does want us to believe him. God does want us to trust him for all our needs. But trust 
must never be divorced from fear. Faith must never be separated from a reverence for God that understands that he is God, as Allison was saying earlier, and that we're his creatures, and that it's we who are beholden to him and not the other way around. And so I should ask you, before we move on in this psalm, if you fear the Lord, before we begin to look at the blessings that come to those who fear the Lord, we need to ask ourselves this evening whether we merely want God for the blessings or whether we fear him and honor him simply because he's God. Whether he is for us a genie in a bottle or whether we revere him as the God of the Bible. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Do you fear him? Do you revere him? Do you esteem him? Do you honor him with your life? Do you, verse 1, walk in his ways? And when you fail to do so, which we all do, do you repent and do you lament that you've dishonored your father? Is God your God in every area of your life or only when it's convenient, only when you want something? Are his laws written on your heart so that you can say with David, I delight to do your will, O my God? And if not, if this does not describe you, if you do not really fear the Lord, won't you turn to Christ this evening right where you sit, asking him to forgive you and to begin changing you from the inside out? He will if you come to him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And at the very core of this new life in Christ is a healthy reverence and fear for God that he will give you. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. If you seek God only for his blessings, then it's quite likely that you don't actually fear him and thus that you may not actually receive his blessings. But if you seek God, if you honor God, not mainly for what you can get out of him, but simply because he's God and worthy to be honored with all of your life, then you'll get both God and his blessings as well. And what are those blessings? How is the person blessed who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Well, the psalm doesn't give us an exhaustive list, of course, but there are four blessings mentioned here in Psalm 128. Two that are promised to those who fear the Lord in verses 2 and 3, and then two more that are prayed for for those who fear the Lord in verses 5 and 6. And I don't think that means that the blessings of verses 5 and 6 are less likely to come to fruition because they're only prayed for and not promised. The whole of the psalm, the whole tenor of the psalm is that God will bless those who fear him. And so I think we can bank on the blessings of verses 5 and 6 in the same way as those in verses 2 and 3. And what are those blessings? Well, let me give, you, give them to you in brief headings. In verse 2, we have God's blessing on our work if we fear the Lord. In verse 3, we have God's blessing on our families if we fear the Lord. In verse 5, we have God's blessing on the church, which is the New Testament equivalent of Jerusalem, if we fear the Lord. And in verse 6, we see God's blessing of long life, if we fear the Lord. Work, family, church, long life. That covers a significant part of your life, doesn't it? 
God's blessing will be all over your life if you fear the Lord. That's what this psalm is teaching. And we'll look at each of those things individually in just a few minutes. But before we do, we just need to pause for a few minutes and address a question that may already be burning in a few of your minds. Namely, does God really say this? Does God really say that if you fear him, you'll have a decent paycheck, verse 2, and your wife will have plenty of children, verse 3, and you'll live long enough to see your grandchildren, verse 6? And if he really is saying that, what do we make of situations when a godly man loses his job or when a godly couple is unable to have children or a faithful Christian dies young? Those are important questions, are they not? Because the psalm does promise a decent paycheck and a fruitful wife and plenty of kids to those who fear the Lord. And it does insinuate, in verse 6, a long life as well. And so what are we to think, not only about examples we could cite of godly people today who seem to have missed out on these things, but what are we to think, for instance, about the Apostle Paul, who was often hungry and ill-provided for? He didn't seem to be living in verse 2 all the time. What do we to think about Ezekiel, whose wife seemed to have died suddenly and couldn't have been as fruitful, probably, as verse 3 would indicate? What do we think about most of the apostles who died young and never saw their grandchildren? Did they miss these blessings because they didn't fear the Lord? Certainly, that's not what the rest of the scriptures teach. And therefore, we mustn't conclude that today concerning people who don't seem to be blessed after the manner of Psalm 128, but who clearly fear the Lord. But if that's the case, if there are these obvious exceptions, what are we to say about these promises? If even the Bible gives us examples of godly people who did not live long and who didn't always have a good salary and who didn't have plenty of kids, how on earth can Psalm 128 make sense? It's not an easy psalm. It's not an easy question, I'll admit. But I think the answer has to be that the specific promises of this psalm about work and family and long life and the church, the specific promises of this psalm are meant to be general in their application. The promises are specific, but they're applied generally to the populace of God's people and not necessarily in every single individual case. By which I mean that, yes, verse 1, everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. And usually, verses 2 through 6, usually, but not invariably, they will be blessed in the ways that are described in this psalm. Let me say that again to make sure it's clear. Looking at this psalm and comparing it with the whole of Scripture, I think we have to say definitely everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. That's a black and white definite. Everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. And usually, though not invariably, they will be blessed in the ways that are described in this psalm. But sometimes, says David Dixon, the the Scottish commentary from a few centuries ago, sometimes God gives us not the precise blessings of Psalm 128, but something else that will be good for us, or even better for us, we might say. I know that may not be as satisfying as we like, especially if we 
like all God's promises to be black and white, even down to the details. But I think this is what we have to say, given that even some of the most godly men and women in the Bible and in the history of the church have not always been blessed in precisely the ways that are enumerated in this psalm, at least not in this life. In fact, we might well notice that Jesus himself, who was the godly man, never had an earthly wife much less any children, and he wasn't prosperous in business, at least over the last three years of his life, and he was not long for this world either, was he? And so I think we must take verse 1 as a definite. Everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. That applies absolutely to every godly person, but then we must understand the specifics of verses 2 through 6 as the usual way in which God bestows such blessings, but not the only way. And we have to accept the fact that since he is God, again, remember what we were saying, what Allison said earlier from the book of Acts, since he is God, sometimes in his wisdom and for his glory and for our ultimate good, he does not give us the usual blessings, but actually something more needful and therefore better. And let's consider also along these lines that as David Dixon says as well, God may sometimes bless us in the ways enumerated in this psalm without us realizing that that's what he's doing. In other words, God may sometimes give you indeed that which is promised in these verses, but you may need some help in recognizing that that's what he's done. And hopefully we'll get some of that help in at least one of these areas of blessing before we finish tonight. So with all that under our belts... Let's look now at each of the blessings enumerated in this psalm, which generally belong to those who fear the Lord. And first off is God's blessing on our work in verse 2. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. And the comment on that in verse 4 is, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The man who fears the Lord will be blessed in the fruit of his hands. And that's clearly a blessing that has to do with our work, is it not? The fruit of your hands is the wages that you garner from the work that you have done with those hands. Indeed, if you look at the NASB footnote, you'll see that fruit there in verse 2 is actually more literally translated as labor. And the idea then is that when a godly man works, he will be able to eat. Verse 2a and that he'll be able to eat enough, verse 2b, so as to be happy and well. Now, that's not the modern American prosperity gospel, and not only because of the difference between fear and faith, but also because verse 2 doesn't promise wealth. It just promises enough. The godly man will have enough to provide for himself and his family. That's what verse 2 is getting at. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. And notice also, as the commentator Adam Clark points out, this verse does say that the godly man will work for his food. The promise here is not that if you are godly, God will ensure a windfall from some rich relative. The promise is if you're godly, you'll be able to work. And you'll be able to earn enough to live on through that work. Now again, this is a general principle. We could all point to men of God that we knew of 
Paul, again, at the top of the list, who sometimes didn't seem to be able to earn a decent living. And we know of men who were disabled and weren't able to work at all. But those are the exceptions, times when God is dispensing a different kind of blessing than is normal. Still a blessing, but a blessing of a different sort than the general principle of this psalm. But the usual pattern is that while God doesn't make his godly ones rich, he does enable them to work and to provide for their families. And rather than dwelling on the exceptions, we should all, with full bellies tonight and with roofs over our heads and clothes on our back, we should all pause and note how God has done that for us, even though we often haven't feared the Lord as we should. Maybe some of you men could even think of times when you began to wonder if you would be able to provide for your family, and God came through because God is good. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he especially blesses those who fear him. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. You work and your work puts food on your table, not because of you, but because of God. That's what the verse is teaching us. And he does that particularly if you will fear him. So that's the first blessing mentioned in this psalm, God's blessing on our work. But then in verse 3, we're also promised God's blessing on our families. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Verse 3, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Now, there are a couple of points to make from that verse. One is that children are a blessing. Remember that this is a psalm about God's blessing on those who fear him. And one of the blessings, not burdens, but blessings, indeed the blessing that is pictured most poetically in this psalm is the blessing of a fruitful wife and a collection of children sitting like olive plants around your table. Thus, verse 4, shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Children are a blessing, which is one of the main themes in Psalm 127 as well. And we would know that children are a blessing from Psalm 128, even if the word blessed had not been used twice in connection with them, because two of the most important crops of the region in which this psalm was written, grapes and olives, are used to depict the godly man's children. They are like grapes that spring forth from the fruitful vine, verse 3, that is the godly man's wife. And children are like olive plants at the end of verse 3 as well. Grapes and olives, these are pictures of blessing in the ancient Near East, in Jewish culture. And so children are to be thought of and spoken of and treated not as burdens but as blessings. Not in terms of what they cost you, but as God's gifts to you. And then the other thing to note from verse 3 is that children are usually God's blessing on those who fear him. They are a sign, generally, of his delight in his own children. And so are the grandchildren that are mentioned in verse 6 as well. And thus, Children should be sought after by married couples, not avoided for personal convenience and certainly not aborted as though they were moles in our garden. And then let me say this also before we leave this point about the family. 
that this is one of those places that David Dixon was talking about in which God may sometimes give us a blessing without us at first realizing that he's done so. Sometimes, as we were saying earlier about all these gifts, sometimes God may not give them to us, and he has other blessings for us. But sometimes God may not bless the righteous with biological descendants, with the biological fruit of the womb, and yet he may give them the privilege of adoption which marvelously pictures the gospel and which still renders a father blessed with olive plants around his table and which still renders a mother fruitful because her children, your children, ladies, are not just your fruit because you physically bore them, but also because you tended them like vines for all those years of their childhood. And along the same lines, let me tell you also about Toby's uncle, Uncle Keith who's been a campus minister for 30-plus years. He's in his mid-60s now. He's never been married. And therefore, Psalm 128, verse 3, may never be true of him in a biological sense or even in an adoptive one. But Keith has many children. He has many young men and women, especially young men, who are at least partially his sons in the faith. And you probably know someone like that too, a man or a woman or maybe even a married couple who for whatever reason were never able to have children in their home, but they feared the Lord and they made disciples all over the place. And in eternity, they will have many olive plants sitting around the table with them in that great banqueting day. God moves in a mysterious way, as Cooper wrote, sometimes by giving a different kind of children to those who thought that they would never have them. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. That is God's usual, though not invariable, blessing on our families. And then thirdly, let's notice God's blessing on the church. Verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Now, for the ancient Jew uh, who lived in the time when this psalm was originally written, that blessing that is prayed for in verse 5 was pretty straightforward. May you live in days in which Jerusalem, the city of God, the seat of God's king, the site of God's temple, the dwelling place of God's name, may you live in days when all of your days are days of Jerusalem's prosperity. Straightforward enough, right? The man who fears the Lord can expect blessing, usually, on Jerusalem. But how does that prayer and how does the blessing that comes with it apply today? Now that Christ has come and now that the temple and its sacrifices are no longer at the center of God's worship and are no longer even necessary, as we were saying on Sunday from Galatians 3. Well, we have to ask as we try to apply this song to ourselves, where is the center of God's worship today? Where is God's king enthroned now? Where does God's presence dwell in the New Testament era? What is the city of God for us? And the answer to all those questions is the church, the assembly of the godly. This is where Christ walks, Revelation 2, among the lampstands that are his church. 
And we, the church, 1 Corinthians 3, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's the followers of Jesus in Matthew 5 that are called the New Testament city set on a hill. And it's the church, 1 Peter 2, that is God's holy nation and his new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. And so all of this is why I call this third point God's blessing on the church. The church is our Jerusalem. It's our city set on a hill. And the prayer which anticipates God's answer is that those who fear the Lord will see the church prosper all their days. And those who fear the Lord will see the church prosper all their days. Sometimes we will see it prosper through expansion and growth, which is probably how we would normally expect this verse to be fulfilled. Other times we will see the church prosper through endurance and groaning. But it's true that the church of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem, will always prosper, whether it's in outward growth or with inner strength amid trials. Indeed, sometimes the church prospers most deeply when she is harried by the outside world and when she is reduced to a remnant because she's pruned, her fat is trimmed, and she's more holy than she was in days when it seemed easy for people to join her ranks. And sometimes, even, the trials and the numeric growth go hand in hand, as in China over the last several decades, so that, as Tertullian put it, so long ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Sometimes when the church suffers, she expands all the more. But whatever the particulars, the reality of verse 5 is that for the godly, there will always be a church, and she will always prosper. Jesus himself said, did he not, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so if you are godly, if you fear the Lord, this prayer will assuredly be answered for you. The Lord bless you from Zion and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. So then we've seen God's blessing on our work, God's blessing on our families, God's blessing on the church if we fear the Lord. And then in the fourth place, we need to see God's blessing of long life in verse 6. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. May you see your children's children. Now again, this blessing, like the others, is what God usually does for the godly, though not what he invariably does. Because we could think of Saul's son, Jonathan, in the Old Testament, or we could think of probably Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, in the New Testament, or we could think of Jim Elliot or my friend Amber Mathenia, all sorts of people we know who were godly and who did not see their grandchildren in this life. But in a general sense, this final verse of the psalm is reiterating and extending the blessing spoken of in verse 3 about children And now it's also adding the expectation that the godly will generally live long enough to actually see their children's children. And so with godliness is usually the expectation of a lengthening out of our days, which is the same sort of expectation that we see attached to the fifth commandment, isn't it? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And that's not just a promise for Old Testament people because the Apostle Paul repeats not only the commandment but the promise as well in Ephesians chapter 6. And so this principle 
is generally true. May you see your children's children. If you are godly, if you fear the Lord, you will generally live longer. And let me say that even more so, we will delight to find verse 6 is true for us in eternity. Because those who fear the Lord don't really die when they die, do they? Isn't that what Jesus said in John 11? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And so living long is a guarantee for those who fear the Lord, even if they are cut off in the springtime of this life. Now, putting that together, you may think that I'm arguing that the prayer of verse 6 will necessarily be fulfilled because you'll be in heaven if you fear the Lord and you'll be able to watch your grandchildren from heaven even if you didn't see them here on earth. But that's not what I'm saying and that's not a subject that the Bible addresses. But what I do know about you seeing your grandchildren in heaven is that there are other general promises of Scripture, not invariable, but general promises of Scripture, whereby those who are godly, those who fear the Lord, very often have children and grandchildren who fear the Lord as well. And so, while Psalm 128.6 has its primary fulfillment in the long earthly life that allows the godly often to see their grandchildren, the reality is also that if you fear the Lord and you pass down that fear and that faith within your family, many of you will see your grandchildren in heaven even if you never meet them on the earth. And that brings me to make one final observation about the promises of God in general, including the ones that are given to us in this psalm. And that is that when we're looking for the fulfillment of God's promises and when we're looking for the answers to our prayers, we must always have eternity in view. We must always reckon with the fact that sometimes God intends certain of his promises to us to be fulfilled in the next life and not in this one. But God will keep his word. And for the best example that some of God's promises are fulfilled in the next life and not in this one, look no further than Jesus. In this life, Jesus seemed to experience very little, as we said earlier, of the blessings of Psalm 128. Jesus had no wife. Jesus had no children or grandchildren. Jesus had no paycheck for the last three years of his life. And he didn't even have a dining room table at which he could eat the fruit of that paycheck, even if he'd had one. But in eternity, Jesus will have the most and already does have the most beautiful bride there ever was, washed in his blood and made spotless for her wedding day. And in eternity, his table will be full, not only with food for the banquet, but with his family as well. And all of it will be the fruit of his nail-pierced hands, the wages of his labor. And while you and I are not Jesus either in the depth of our fear of the Lord or in the capacity of our hands to produce eternal fruit, the reality is that if we fear the Lord, God will still be pouring out Psalm 128-like blessings upon us in eternity as well. They won't look just the same, for one thing, because biological marriage and family do not function in the same way in glory, but the godly will see a reward in heaven. The reward of our 
gospel efforts, the fruit of our hands, verse 2. The reward of spiritual children and grandchildren, verse 3. Won by our witness, some of them probably from our own biological families. The reward of a church in eternity, verse 5, more prosperous than ever she was. And the reward of an eternity itself, verse 6, to take it all in. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord.